Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. So here we go. Question number one. I'm seeing stories about accounting firms getting private equity investments. Why? So I reached out to this person to kind of better understand what they were talking about. Essentially, there have been some investments by private equity firms into accounting firms. And the question is why? Well, here's the thing. Right now, because of the high valuation of the stock market, because of super high interest rates, you're seeing a lot of private equity firms that raised funds, call it in the maybe like pre-pandemic era or even kind of through the pandemic, um, and they're sitting on a lot of cash. And their investors are probably getting a little agitated and, hey, you're sitting on cash. It's not earning a return. What are you going to do? How are you going to put this money to work? And so they're scanning out into the market and saying, okay, where are there the best oppor- like return opportunities for this capital? And one area where things, you know, the underlying tailwinds are definitely going to produce growth over time is in the continued kind of expansion of the government and increased regulatory environment and increased um, tax compliance. And so who are the direct beneficiaries of that? Accounting firms. Um, And so what you're likely seeing is these accounting firms want to hire faster and need to hire more talent and grow faster than they can simply from the way they've operated historically, which is the way that they've... um, kind of grown and had capital to grow is through promoting people to partner. So when a firm is a partnership, which is kind of how a lot of law firms and accounting firms operate, what happens is is as somebody progresses, they eventually reach the level of partner. And when they reach the level of partner, there's a buy-in. And so the partners have to put up some amount of capital, which then gives them an ownership stake in the firm. And that also then gives the firm capital that they can use to invest in either expansion or hiring, you know, more junior accountants and things like that. Um, And so what also is happening is like in many of these industries and accounting, for example, a lot of the most senior talent is looking to retire and looking to be cashed out. And there may not be enough sort of up and coming partners for there to be enough capital to do that. So a private equity firm infusing capital into an accounting firm is another means for them to do that. They can cash out the more senior partners. They can use that capital to hire more junior talent, kind of more worker bees, if you will, um, to meet the growing demand for their services. So that's likely why you're seeing that go on. Um, You provided kind of just one article that pointed to it. It's not something that I've seen happen on a really widespread basis. Uh, But we are, you know, it is something that makes sense given kind of some of the trends in the marketplace in terms of an increased regulatory environment and increased need for compliance. Um, The fact that just, you know, a simple example is now any business, right, any small business that pays somebody more than $600 a year, you've got to issue them a 1099 as an example. 
Um, you know, that is an increased level of regulatory compliance that can be a burden on small entities, and they're going to turn to accounting firms to help alleviate some of that burden. Um, so anyway, that's likely would be my gut instinct and my guess as to why you're seeing that. Like I said, I saw the one article you shared. It's not something I've seen happen a whole lot, but it makes sense to me as to like why they might be interested um, in investing in that. So I hope that that helps. Okay, next question. How can I calculate if a pension is worth staying at my job versus investing with a higher salary elsewhere? So this is a really good question. Um, and it talks to, I want to talk a little bit about some of the trends and just the way we think about retirement and the way retirement operates today versus the way it may have operated, you know, for our parents and especially for our grandparents. What we've seen, call it over the last um, 40 some odd years, and I have a whole post about this that I'll link up in my stories when I'm done here, that shares some of the data and trends around how many people have a pension. Um, when did the 401k come about? Really, the um, passage of the law by Congress that allowed for the creation of a 401k to happen really only happened in the early 80s. So for many of us, um, you know, our parents were some of the first people with access to a 401k. And as that gained traction, more companies were like, hey, um, I can shift this very uncertain, unknowable, ballooning liability, which is retirement funding for all of my employees. I can instead shift that burden to them by providing this 401k option for them. Um, and so what do I mean by like a ballooning liability with a pension? Well, with a pension, a company is telling you, um, I promise and I guarantee these certain benefits for you in retirement. The uncertainty with that is exactly how much that annual payout is going to be, how much are going to be the cost of benefits in your retirement, how long are you going to live. And what we've seen happen is that over time, those the cost of providing all that is far greater than most companies ever projected or anticipated. And call it like in the um, maybe early 2000s and even a little before that, like we saw certain industries see a lot of financial distress from the burden of their pension liabilities. Things like the auto industry, for example. And in certain cases, you actually saw bankruptcy proceedings where they met with the unions, they met with the pension recipients, and they came to sort of agreements where they minimized pension um, benefits going forward and kind of renegotiated some of the ongoing payments that were being made um, in order for the company to even continue to be viable, as an example. Now, generally speaking, labor, labor laws significantly protect um, pension commitments from bankruptcy proceedings. So what has been promised often cannot change, but what you'll see happen, especially for younger entry-level employees, is many companies are sort of shifting from instead of promising pension benefits to providing um, individual retirement accounts like 401ks. So it shifts the burden of saving for retirement from the company who has to set money aside for your future retirement to you. And so the trade-off often in these situations is places that pay a guaranteed, you're going to make this, we're going to cover all your healthcare obligations in retirement, they often pay a lower salary because 
they have that additional cost of providing for you in retirement. And they're having to put money aside every year um, to accrue assets in the future in order to pay for that. On the flip side, if you go somewhere that doesn't offer that, they may have a higher headline salary upfront, but that's because that burden and that risk and that future liability of saving for your own retirement is on you. So how do you kind of do the math to understand which is the better option? Well, a couple things you want to consider. Typically, if you've been, you know, if you're just starting out, that's kind of where you want to think about this math most. If you've been somewhere for a while, um, you've already kind of built up some of that pension and you also have fewer years left to just save for yourself. Um, so then the math looks a little different, but here's kind of the things you want to consider. One, how many years do you have left to retirement? What's the delta between the salary difference? So like how much of that differential in salary are you going to have? And are you going to have kind of the discipline to set that aside for yourself and save for retirement? And then what risk level are you comfortable with? So what is the potential return you can earn on that investment? And so that's going to give you all the numbers you need to kind of do the math as to how much could you save for retirement? And then that will also tell you, okay, well, if I can set aside this much, you can use kind of a, a general rule of thumb as sort of the 4% rule, which says, okay, when do I get to where that asset base, that 4% of that is enough for me to live off of every year in retirement? And is that greater than what the pension benefit is going to be? And so it's a lot of assumptions. Um, very small changes in those assumptions can have a wildly different kind of impact on what the, the answer is. Um, the other thing to consider as well is that your pension benefits at wherever you're at are likely only guaranteed, assuming that you serve out kind of the lifetime of your career there in order to receive and realize those benefits. So you kind of need to think about that as well. Um, but that's kind of the math to think about. What's the salary delta? Are you gonna take that difference in salary and invest it all for your retirement? How many years do you have to do that? What is the amount that that's going to accrue? And is that going to provide you more benefits than you would get kind of from the pension? And keep in mind that it's not just salary, it's also health insurance, um, healthcare, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the thing, what you have to look at. Um, so I hope that that helps. But like I said, when I'm done here, I will link up in my stories kind of the whole post I have about how to choose the right retirement account for you. Um, and it talks about some of the trends and um, you know, the decline in the number of people actually receiving pension benefits over time, why the shift has happened, um, and kind of why that makes employment, like retirement look different for us and our generation than it may have in the past. Um, but it doesn't walk through kind of that math I just talked about, but that's the way to think about it. What's the difference in salary? What can I invest and earn each year? How many years do I have to retirement? And what does that then result in, in terms of how much I can, you know, withdraw and use in retirement? So I hope that that helps a little bit. Um, I'll link up when I'm done here, two different things that post about retirement accounts and kind of the history and the evolution, just so you can kind of see how it's changed over time. And then I also have um, a retirement calculator where you can plug in, you know, here's how much I have saved. Here's how much I want to put aside a year. Here's kind of what I think the annual return assumption would be. 
kind of as a rule of thumb, if you're not quite sure what to assume, you know, on average over a long period of time, the S&P 500 has returned about 10% a year. However, most people aren't going to put everything into equities. They're going to have some sort of like um, more balanced portfolio between equities and bonds over time. So maybe like a more moderate or conservative assumption would be something like a 7% annual return. Um, if you want to be more aggressive, maybe it would be closer to that 10% number. But if you kind of triangulate between those, you can see kind of what that could invest and compound into over time. So I'll link up those two resources when I'm done here and you can kind of plug in some numbers and see what it spits out to kind of help you make your decision. Okay, next question. My Roth IRA has an advisor who gets a cut. How can I switch it to one that I control? So this is a really good question. Um, I'm not sure if it's um, an IRA or a 401k through your employer, uh, but you should be able to, you know, if it's at an administrator and you initially set it up to have an advisor, you should have the ability to um, kind of terminate that relationship. If you went through an advisor to set it up, you may have to roll over those assets or transfer those assets to like your own brokerage in a new Roth IRA to kind of remove them from um, having oversight on it. It kind of depends on how that initial relationship was set up, but you always have control over your assets. So you need to understand sort of like, how did I get involved in this relationship to begin with? Is there something I checked when I set up my account that said I wanted oversight? Did I go meet with an advisor to begin with and they set up the account? And so that's why I'm paying a management fee to this person. Um, but it does take, you know, I think a lot of times what happens is like people don't like to be confrontational. It's going to take some level of confrontation to understand like, all right, how did this relationship get set up? What do I need to do to terminate? Uh, um, typically, termination is going to involve like something in writing where you say, um, I no longer want to have this advisory relationship. If there was ever like a contract or something you engaged into, there may be like a um, notification period where like that transition happens. You may need to, depending again on how it's set up, potentially open up a new account to roll over to, to kind of remove it from their oversight. If it's something like through your employer, you may need to set up an IRA on your own that you can roll those assets over to, to kind of remove that advisor oversight um, and the fees associated with that. But it's absolutely something that you can do. Um, the first place you may want to start if you're kind of not sure is to reach out to the fund administrator on your account and just ask the question. Just say, hey, I'm being hit with advisory fees on this. I'm not really sure where, you know, how this came about, but I would like to not have them anymore. What do I need to do in order to facilitate that? Um, because again, it's going to kind of depend on how it was all set up to begin with in terms of how you would go about removing them. But I do think that it's, you know, this is a great question because just having that additional layer of, you know, it's probably something in the realm of one person a year, you know, that can add up to a lot, especially the larger your portfolio gets over time. Um, so, you know, it could be the difference between earning on average seven or eight person a year versus five to six person a year. 
um, and what that then means in terms of your total retirement balance um, in retirement. You know, there's a compounding effect associated with those fees. So I'm proud of you for wanting to explore it. And like I said, if you're not quite sure, the best place to start would be reaching out to the fund administrator um, wherever your account is located to kind of help navigate, like, why is this happening? Why is it set up this way? And what do I need to do in order to not be incurring these fees anymore? But good question. Um, okay, next question. If you are quote unquote young, do you put more money in a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA? So very good question. What I will tell you is that age has less to do with it. Let's talk about, and I know I kind of sound like a broken record. This is a question that comes up in various degrees a lot, um, but I know not everybody listens to every episode, so it's worth repeating. The differences between a Roth, and this is whether you're talking about a 401k or an IRA, and a traditional version of those accounts is tax treatment and when the money is taxed. So in a Roth account, you're going to make contributions in the current year on an after-tax basis. In a traditional account, you're going to make contributions on a pre-tax basis, meaning anything you contribute gets deducted from your current year income and you don't pay taxes on it this year. So it's reducing your taxes, income taxes in the current year. So why would you choose to contribute funds after tax today when you could save on taxes today in a traditional account? Because in a Roth account, by, by paying taxes on that money today and contributing on an after-tax basis, you never pay taxes again. Any of that money, the gains compound on a tax-free basis, and as long as you use them for their intended purpose and withdraw them in retirement, you never pay taxes again, okay? That ultimately could be a much larger savings than what you might save by paying taxes on it today. The traditional account, you invest pre-tax, you minimize your taxable income today, so you pay less in taxes this year. Um, but going forward, your gains all still accrue on a tax-deferred basis, but when you withdraw those funds in retirement, they're taxed at ordinary income, okay? So the choice isn't about, you know, if I'm young or old. The choice is really more, what do I see the outlook of my tax obligations in the future versus today? And am I better off paying taxes now or paying taxes in the future? I think increasingly the way people feel about this is that given the size of our government, given the growth of government spending, given the national debt, most people anticipate that tax rates are going to be higher in the future than they are right now. Um, most people anticipate that they will make more in the future than they make right now. And even if you're withdrawing in retirement less than you're potentially earning right now, the higher tax rates most people expect to come, it makes more sense to them to pay taxes at the known likely lower rate today than the rate they will have to pay potentially in the future. And so that is why people make the choice to contribute to a Roth instead of a traditional account today. Um, again, it doesn't have anything to do with age. It has to do with tax obligations and how you feel or think what will happen to tax rates going forward versus where they're at today. Um, so I hope that that helps. And the post that I'll link up in my stories for 
the question a few back that talks about kind of retirement accounts and the evolution of retirement accounts talks to that difference as well if you want to check that out too. Uh, okay, next question. How do you see sustainable investing transforming the real estate and energy sectors in the next decade? We're eager to hear your insights and predictions. So this is a topic that was like very front of mind, kind of, I would even say like ahead of the pandemic and even a little bit kind of through the pandemic and even kind of um, in some of the discussions of the infrastructure bill that was passed by the Biden administration, a lot of that was sort of targeted to what became known as ESG investing, which was environmental, social, and governance. And you saw a lot of like ESG funds popping up. You saw a lot of asset managers touting like their focus and their emphasis on these things. And I would say like in the last year or so, a lot of that kind of hype has died down. And it's not to say that it isn't an important kind of things to think about and consider. I actually, about this time a year ago, interviewed one of my friends from college who was a general counsel at a green energy company um, about this very topic. And I haven't published the episode yet because of two things. One, the interest in it sort of died down. Um, and two, one of the things that she raised is like the single biggest concern around all this is that there's really not a solid set of agreed upon metrics that make it easy for investors to hold companies accountable to the things they're saying. So what do I mean by that? I mean, like you had lots of companies say like, we're going to have all of these like ESG goals that we're going to meet over time. And what you've seen happen over the last couple of years is people have started to back off of those. They've stopped tracking them entirely. The way one company tracks it is different than the way another company tracks it. Think about it kind of in these terms, right? Like publicly traded companies all report earnings on something known as GAAP, which is generally accepted accounting principles. Um, they're kind of mandated and the same for everybody so that you know when I look at Google and I compare it to say Facebook, I know that these um, financial statements are directly comparable because they're required to report along with the, using the same set of rules. Nothing like that yet exists for ESG. And so before you can have kind of like real conviction in when I invest in an ESG fund, it's really abiding by all these principles, you have to have sort of strict measurement requirements to track and hold accountability to those things. And that's some of why you started to see um, I don't want to say fall apart. That's sort of like too draconian a way to frame it, but that's why you've seen some of that fall out of favor. Um, there are still ESG initiatives that are out there. There are still lots of green energy and social initiatives that are out there that companies are trying to meet. Um, however, until we have kind of a standardized means of testing, um, tracking, reporting on these various things, it's going to be difficult for them to gain traction. One of the things kind of that like shown a glaring light on this was like you had, um, I'm trying to think when it was now, 
So last year, the market was up kind of 20 plus percent. The year before that was when we had a down. So that was 23. I think it was 2022 where we had a down market and the only sector of the market that was up was energy, right? And so by definition, these ESG funds all were underperforming the market because they didn't invest in traditional energy companies. And that was really what was the only positive performer in the market that year. And that was another reason that the things started to fall apart, right? Like everybody's interested in something so long as it's making them money, but when it's not, it begins to be harder to justify. And what you started to see happen was some of these ESG funds suddenly had companies like Exxon in their portfolio. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, so suddenly Exxon might be investing in some green energy initiatives, but the vast majority of their earnings are associated with you know, traditional energy production. So how do you justify that to those two things? And so again, it started to sort of undermine some of the messaging and interest and things like that. All of that being said, it doesn't change the fact that there are still, you know, interest in things like that in these initiatives. I think a lot of people would say that they need to be, um, uh, financially viable on their own, absent things like grants, government support, um, government investment infusions and things like that before they can sustainably attract kind of investment from the outside world. Um, and that's sort of, I don't know. It's not that I'm saying that it's not an important trend. I just think we have to be careful about companies paying lip service to things that are popular in um, the marketplace, and then how we actually hold them accountable to the things they're saying, and then whether or not those initiatives translate to financial returns over time. Those are sort of like, if you think about kind of the three legs of the stool, right? Like, um, yes, it's important to support various social initiatives. Yes, it's important to support things that are helpful for the environment over time. Um, Yes, it's important to have good governance within a company, but how then do we measure the things that they're saying that they are doing? And oh, by the way, all of those things are important, but at the end of the day, we're investing to generate a return, um, whether it is to save for retirement or whatever other investment goals and objectives we have are. And so those three things kind of have to all fit together in order for them to make sense. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that directly answers your question, but that's kind of like, the evolution of what has gone on with ESG. And if there's significant interest, I'm, I can go and publish that interview that I recorded about a year ago that talks to some of this in greater detail if um, people are interested in hearing that. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's kind of my thoughts on the subject. Um, so I would say, I feel like the biggest thing is that there needs to be greater transparency, greater kind of mandated and clearly documented and defined rules and reporting requirements before you can have something that is um, kind of a sustainable investment trend, if that makes sense. There's sort of this phrase in investing and in finance that what gets measured gets done. You'll hear kind of um, CEOs and CFOs talk about things like KPIs, which are key performance indicators. You can have all that within a company, but it's going to vary from company to company. We need something that's applicable to everyone and that is directly comparable from company to company. So you know like what you're looking at 
and what we're measuring in order to kind of all be on the same page. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my two cents on it. I don't know if that was kind of the answer you were looking for, but that's sort of how I think about it. Um, okay, one of the things that I'm gonna be talking about in stories today is yesterday, we got the quarterly report on household credit and no surprise, consumer debt balances have gone up again. And the other kind of concerning trend is that delinquency rates are going up as well. This is not hugely surprising. We've seen spending continue to grow at a pace that outstrips kind of income growth. And so how do you pay for that? You pay for it with debt. Um, and so I'll be breaking down some of the, the data points from that report, highlighting some of the things that give me cause for concern. Um, and so I'll be sharing that later today. Uh, other things that are coming out this week, it's a big week for corporate earnings. Um, more than 100 companies are reporting this week. Uh, a lot more sort of, of the consumer brand type companies, companies like McDonald's had a big miss um, this week is one kind of name that comes top of mind. But like I said, there's over 100 companies reporting this week. So we're kind of still in the thick of that earnings season. Um, tomorrow, we'll get the usual kind of weekly jobless claims and mortgage rate numbers. Jobs are something we're going to continue to focus on just because of like the mismatch in the data between the seasonally adjusted and the unadjusted data. We also know that there have been more layoffs announced and reported in the month of January than any month since 2020 um, in this current month of January. So how do we reconcile those two things with sort of the headline numbers that are coming out um, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics? And tracking sort of these weekly unemployment claims is the closest to real-time information we can get on the labor market. So I'll be sharing those numbers as they come out tomorrow. Um, trying to think what else. That's kind of the bulk of what's going on this week. So I hope you guys have a great rest of the weekend. Um, look for kind of the breakdown of consumer credit and some of the data points from that later today. And I will be back here next week to take your questions live again on Wednesday. I will be also I will also be posting both this replay and last week's, which I overlooked, to the podcast. If you prefer to listen on the go, you can always catch it there. You sign up for the Family Finance Mom newsletter. It'll also get emailed to you each week directly to your inbox every Thursday morning. It's one email a week. I don't spam you, I promise. Um, and that's it. So have a great rest of the week. Have a great weekend. And I'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.